Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Markets Show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle. I am joined today by Bradley Gerald, news editor. How are you doing, Bradley? I'm doing great, thank you, John. Wonderful. And uh, Harriet Russell, how are you doing, Harriet? Yeah, good, thanks. Excellent, excellent. And Jonas Crossland, how are you doing, Jonas? I'm very well, thanks, John. Very Wonderful, well. good stuff. Okay, quite a busy week. Uh, some of us have been on holiday, some of us are getting back from holiday, but nevertheless, we have a magazine to put out and it's chocked full this week. Let's start, well, we're going to talk with uh, Harriet very shortly about the cover feature which is half full, which is about taking advantage of falling share prices where that's presented a value opportunity, a buying opportunity. And actually, some of those companies are are actually in the results section as well, as it happens, which is very handy. Bradley, we're going to start, though, with uh, the week's news. Yeah, seven days is a pretty packed affair this week. But I guess um, one thing to focus on in light of what you've just said about the cover feature is um, the chart of the week. Um, Some data was sent to me by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, and it kind of looked at what they described as cherished holdings, those holdings that you've um, perhaps got in your portfolio that you just can't let go of for whatever reason, um, usually and the logical reason if you can't let go of it and then um there are some sort of very well-known companies, or all very well-known companies in there. And then um, the chart just looks at the five-year average EPS growth of, of these 10 companies that they've identified. Um, well, growth is the wrong word, really. Only one of them's actually had an average EPS growth in the past five years. Which surprisingly is a minor. But surprisingly is a minor, Glencore. Um, but yeah, the other things like Tesco, Anglo-American, Vodafone, these are likely to be prominent, um, you know, sort of, um, examples of stocks that feature in some of our readers and listeners' portfolios. Um, so, you know, if you are holding those, this that sort of data point might be a prompt for you to consider whether you should do, or perhaps now, as Harriet's feature might say, maybe now would be the time to go into them if there's value there. But I just thought that chart of the week juxtaposes quite nice with that, that well, theme. It, it does. I thought the very same myself. It was a nice happy coincidence. But uh, no, it was it was it. Was it a planned, John, a planned wow. uh, offensive of chart of the week, you know. Well, yeah. I like to, you know, integrate st- our copy. You're one step ahead of me on this one, but I was on holiday, so, uh, well, exactly. so I've I got an excuse. taking up the baton from you, John. Indeed. Um, and one of those companies is Marcus Spencer, which is actually in the, in the feature as well. We'll talk about that in a bit more detail mm-hmm. in a minute. Uh, there's a lot of disagreement about Marcus Spencer around the office. But, yeah, I mean, yeah. that's what makes it a beautiful stock, though. It's, like, so, it's just so divisive. I mean, Beautiful stock. Yeah, insofar as it's... It, I think particularly within sort of British consciousness, it's got such nostalgia surrounding it. Mm. It'll be, if people are sad about BHS, can you imagine the day that M&S goes under? I mean... Well, it almost got bought by Philip Green, didn't it, many, it many did, years ago? It did, We were only talking uh, yesterday about you know, what what could have happened had Philip Green got his hands on Marks and Spencers, given mm. what's happening now mm. at BHS, which is an extraordinary story, the likes of which I think I've rarely seen, involving death threats. Well, Oh, please, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> it got all a bit dramatic in it's that uh, committee, didn't it? Anyway... Okay, let's uh, let's move on because uh, we're going to cover this in more detail in the feature. Mm-hmm. What else have we got going on in uh, seven days? I guess uh, a couple of uh, interesting things just to touch on very briefly. Um, WPP suffered a bit of um, uh, a backlash, I suppose, against Martin Sorrell's seventy million pound pay packet for twenty fifteen. I don't think many people would suggest that. Sir Martin has not done a very good job in building WPP into the Goliath it is today. But the the issue of executive pay is first and foremost, really, in many investors' minds. And actually, what I'm finding interesting is that a lot of institutional investors are becoming a lot more willing to let people like the press and the public know they're voting. And it, often, if they're letting us know, it means they're voting against. It means mm. that you know it's PR positive. Don't get me wrong, but um, there is a growing swelling of some sort of substantial votes against these big pay packages in WPP's case as many others it's advisory and also it wasn't a majority but it is um, 
a much larger figure than what is probably usually maybe a I mean, definitely single percentage points, you know, yeah. objection to these pay packets. And we, we looked at Martin Sorrell's Sir Martin's uh, pay packets uh, in, in a bit of detail, actually, not in not in this issue, which comes out on Friday, but in, in the previous week's issue, Paul Jackson, who is an expert on, on executive remuneration, looks in detail at Martin Sorrell's pay. So if you want to, if you want to actually understand the background to this story, then it's probably, probably a good idea to go and have a look at that on the website. Absolutely. You know, shareholder response to executive pay it does seem to be a you know coming to the fore again at the moment but we have been here before i mean the, the sh- who can forget the shareholder spring uh, a few years ago but it kind of petered out a little yeah it does and i think i guess what happens is people have a short attention span is probably what happens and we get very agitated and we kind of forget because it's another year till the agm and well we forget how many millions of pounds these guys are paid well yeah i think we kind of do i think it gets repeated but our agitation levels for it kind of dissipate until it comes around again and we're faced with the agm again and the, the big figure in the press again and off we go on our little sort of anger momentum again but... do, do you think that's partly because no matter how much we as shareholders complain nothing ever seems to change i guess that is the case and i guess what maybe is happening or starting to happen now and this is probably going to be a very long cycle though is that if this anger does keep happening then over time what you are potentially maybe going to see is more institutional investors listening to that and voting accordingly in these AGMs as you say private investors are often kind of hogtied really they can't really do much apart from be angry about it but nor can the institutions really it seems well they can vote though but they can vote you can vote as a private shareholder. I mean, sure, but I mean, as, as, long as, as, invest- as long as your broker allows you to, exactly. And also, an institution, an institution investor is much likely, more likely to have um, a percentage of shares mm. that is going to make a difference if, like, four or five of them club together. Whereas if there's, you know, I don't know, five thousand private individuals might not make up a big percentage of the total share mm. shares an issue. So it, it does need really institutions to feel the pressure on this to vote i think well, i think that's what people would want to see from fund managers people i think so money, yeah the money that you know essentially they're invested yeah and there was a great piece in ftfm um this week actually on in monday's ft about a chap who invests in blackrock and he's kind of agitating for blackrock to vote in a much more in his view active way because he views their approach to remuneration acceptance as just a box ticking exercise well, exactly. well maybe there is the solution maybe actually instead of applying pressure on the companies which is a as a private shareholder you don't really have a voice to do but apply it to the fund managers instead yeah sounds like a good idea it could well be all right you heard it here first you did okay what else we got um, uh, so the, I mean, the ECB, uh, given the Brexit backdrop, this is an interesting story. It is, yeah. Buying up corporate debt. Obviously, this is a very well-trailed thing that they were going to do. They started this week. Um, it's had already a big effect on European corporate bond yields and prices, which obviously move inversely to one another. Um, positive so far, positive effect. It's going to be very interesting. I think um, if you know, there are any investors who are listening in bond funds it's going to be a very interesting time because it's likely to have an impact even though the ECB is just buying sort of mainland European corporate bonds I don't think it's coming into the UK market it could well have an impact on sentiment to the UK market and could be quite an interesting impact on the dynamics mm. well actually the copper indicators which i put together today which will appear in next week's magazine uh lots of spy signals on on, on bond markets mm. particularly corporate bonds i, I can understand uh, why given you've got now a massive backstop to the european corporate bond market yeah but that was only coming completely unexpected a while back i mean you know yeah i mean the, the idea no, no bonds can go no lower gilts can go no lower well, exactly. but they, they, in terms of yields that is yeah but they can and sat here a year ago, if somebody had said in a year Draghi's going to be buying up corporate bonds, we'd have said that's preposterous.
preposterous. He won't do that. Mm. It's a step too far. I also noticed he was he was, uh, he was bemoaning the fact that a, a lot of this monetary stimulus, this stimulus, whatever, you know, in whatever form it takes, is not actually finding its way through to the real economy. And he was moaning about the trans the, the poor transmission mechanism there. It's been the case for a very long time. I'm, I'm sure he's. I hope he's realised this prior to now. But yeah, well, yeah, you would have thought. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. The, the, getting the actual real economy to fire using these experimental methods yeah it's um mm. it's having some effects on the economy but maybe not the full effect he wants yeah well there you go okay and another interesting story i mean going back to the kind of uh how companies are run of which pay is a part mm. aim yes so i've written about this in my editorial you have uh and you've written about it in the news section as well indeed and also we, i've managed to tie it neatly in to the sports direct story which you have also covered there's just the synergies here. So let's Donna, start. Let's start with uh, let's start with uh, ShareSock's um, little manifesto that's put together on how it thinks AIM should be improved. Sure. So ShareSock is um, an organisation that basically exists to promote the rights of private shareholders, and um, an awful lot of what it does is very good. And um, you could argue that its proposals in this paper that it released um, early this week are also potentially very good, um, and potentially in the interests of private shareholders. But some of their 11 proposals would perhaps curb what has actually been a good and beneficial thing about AIM, which is the fact that although, yes, a lot of companies fail, what you may have had if you hadn't, if AIM didn't exist in its guise as it does now, you may not have had many companies be able to come to market, mm. which have actually been very, very successful and actually delivered investors some fantastic returns. Yes, there have been a lot of collapses on AIM. Yes, there's been forgery, fraud, whatever you, you know, but there has on the main market, as we were discussing yesterday. Well, it's, my view would be that no matter how much you regulate anything, somebody who willfully wants to mislead investors or commit fraud will find a way to do it. Exactly. And, you know, I I think some of the proposals are good and useful. And I think, yeah, certainly there's elements of governance that need to be improved. But I I honestly believe some of the things they say you could equally level as charges at the main market. Absolutely. And there are, I mean, I spoke to some well-known AIM investors. I spoke to uh, Gervais Williams over at Mighton. Mighton is itself an AIM-listed fund manager. And Gervais Williams also runs multi-asset income funds, which invest heavily in AIM stocks. And he's long invested in AIM companies too. And uh, Paul Mumford over at Cavendish Asset Management is a very long-term AIM investor and they both were on my conversation they both first fully admitted that of course AIM is not perfect that they would never profess that they would never say AIM is a perfect market they would never say you couldn't potentially improve it but if you improve it which in the in share stock sense not entirely but means maybe adding some regulations mm. that they're they're clear they don't want to completely overregulate it they they do say that in their first point but there are r- proposals like curbing the amount of share issues a company could do and things like that. So well, it's, it's a growth market. They need to raise capital. Well, exactly, yeah. So the, while they're, they kind of say they're against massive regulations, in their 11 points, there are proposals for more regulations. So I think it's fair to say they want to increase regulation a little bit on AIM. I think hopefully they'll appreciate that's fair. And Gervais Williams and Paul Mumford probably wouldn't necessarily disagree with that either. But Gervais said, you know, that look at the biotech sector. You might not have had the fantastic returns from that had they not been around to incubate those companies. And also, he said, if you remove risk, often you remove rewards. Mm. So, yes, you could further regulate AIM, but you run the risk of increasing costs for the participants and you run the risk of it not being as fruitful. Yes, you have to pick the right investments for it to be fruitful, but that's the case with any market. Yes, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, my view would be, I mean, what 
what she, one of the things Shersock said was that some of the, the, the regulatory status quo as, as it is, is kind of off-putting to, to perhaps some of the more quality businesses who might otherwise be attracted to AIM. And I dispute that as well. Well, yeah, and you just have to look at the companies that have come to Margarita. Hotel Chocolat has been going for a long time. It's not just a flash in the pan thing. Jules, the clothing company, has been around since about what, 1989, 1990 mm. or something. Fever Tree been around for 10, 12 years. I mean, these companies are not just like... They're not trying to make a quick buck or something. I mean, they, they're, they're established businesses. Yeah, yeah. Well, oh, there's some ancient businesses on AIM. Some of them are yeah. hundreds of years, what, 800 years old or more. Yeah. So. But I mean, to give ShareStock their dues, there are some interesting proposals there. They, they suggest that splitting the um, nomad, which is the nominated advisor to AIM companies and the broker, should be split. Mm. That can presently be done by one company. There is a conflict of interest there, potentially. And um, I mean, Chinese walls are for. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but I mean, Paul Umford, he did say, you know, that that could be, you could see that as an issue. But the problem with fixing that issue is cost. Mm. It costs companies more, therefore you might not get companies listing on AIM. I mean, one thing Paul Umford did say, which was interesting, an issue he found personally, which he offered to me, not really th- just through his own kind of views on AIM, was that one thing he really does disagree with is the ability for companies on AIM to delist. Yeah, well, this has caused a lot of problems with yeah. uh, I mean, so for him, the smaller end of it. Yeah, of course, but for him, it's not an issue because he can hold unlisted stocks in his yeah, fund. Yeah. But obviously, it is an issue for a private investor. So he said that is an issue. That might be one area one might want to look at to protect private investors. But overall, he was kind of the same mindset, really, as Gervais Williams of, you know, yes, there could be improvements, but if you overregulate it, then, you know, it might not end up being what you want it to be. No. Anyway, we're talking about it. So, you know, we're talking about it. ShareSock has served its purpose. Yeah. We're talking about it. Exactly. I mean, There's room for improvement. ShareSock has no powers to implement these changes. They're just proposals. And that's what's great about it. As you say, let, let's discuss it. Let's see uh, which have credence, which we think don't. And, yeah, let's see if their suggestions get anywhere. Indeed. So, as I said... You know, some charges of poor governance can be levelled at some of the companies on the main list. And one company which has long attracted such criticism is Sports Direct. That's true. When it floated, there was always a bit of a stink about this one. It, you know, it didn't do very well. There were always question marks about, about the way its, it's uh, board was structured. And it had seemed to have got its act together. I mean, you, wouldn't you agree with that over the last few years? It was yeah, a storming absolutely. performance. I mean, even when I was only the shadow correspondent on the retail beat and Julia Bradshaw was in charge, I mean, it was a real darling of ours and, and, and the market as well. We had it on a mini buy and the shares performed extremely well. They outperformed expectations mm. almost every quarter, I would say, certainly every interim and full year. So uh, for a while... Momentum was definitely there. But it's all gone wrong. Yeah, It has. Um, and, and one of the things I picked up on uh, in my column, um, which is based on something Sports Direct's founder, Mike Ashley, said to the parliamentary committee he was speaking to, was that it, he the company had grown too big for him to know what was going on in some of the warehouses where, where accusations of some kind of shoddy practices uh, have been going on. And, that, and my view is, well, yeah. I mean, this, this, so this is, this is something that kind of... You can look at a big company and think, well, that's solid and that's secure, but big companies become very difficult to manage at some points. And I don't necessarily think that bigger is better. And, and the point I make in my editorial is that Tesco got very large and you know problems were went unrecognised by management. RBS, you could argue the same thing. So just because something is big and on the main list doesn't mean it's immune to, 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 to bad management. No, absolutely. It's an absolutely fair point. And he, you know, he kind of admitted that in um, in the committees, you say, there's potentially a, a benefit to him admitting that because if he says he does know everything that goes on, then that looked pretty bad because then he'd know about employees which were, 
allegedly being effectively paid below the minimum wage because mm. of these long security checks. So there is a potential interest in him saying that, but I think that looking at it, looking at how he was reacting in there, I think he is probably actually a fairly honest answer. You know, I think he was being, I think he was being quite truthful. Yeah, sports industry, horrible place to be. Well, yeah, I mean, JJB. <laughs> JD Sports, though, one of my favourites. JD Sports, is, yeah, but that's not really in the sports industry. That's fashion. It is fashion, and I mean, I would just throw my two cents into the into the quarter. I mean, I know I've I've been away, so missed this one sort of in terms of being in the fray, but I don't believe him for one second. Ooh, ooh, sorry. Strong stuff, Harriet. <laughs> Strong stuff. JD Sports. Incidentally, so when my ch- when my children were young, uh, they were quite happy to buy their trainers from Sports Direct. Now they have become teenagers. They will not step foot in a Sports Direct. It's mm. JD or nothing now. Mm. So there's like a gradient, is there? It, like, there, there, teen years. there is a tier, <laughs> a tier of trainer except acceptance and uh yeah sports director doesn't cut the mustard with teenage girls I, I, I just speak from the point of view of someone who used to have to audit this sort of stuff and basically you're, you're you're on the ground in these places and you're having to report back and that eventual audit report does make its way it has to be signed off by the finance director now that's got to be mike ashley's number three let's say mm. yeah no it, it does, I, I i know what you're saying i know what you're saying and yeah Again, you know, it just takes me back to the point that I made originally in my editorial, which is large businesses are not immune to, to being badly run. There you go. Okay, that's it. We've got nothing more to say on the subject. I don't think there is much more to say on it. No, I mean, I, I, my, my sort of view on the, the sports rep thing is that I, I guess what Mr. Ashley will be hoping is that this is kind of an end or at least a pause to the bad PR that the company suffered year to date because it's had yeah, a, torrid had a few terrible, months. terrible, terrible time. I mean, just every sort of month or so, I think we've re- if you look at the um, IC website and go on the sports rep sort of cover page there are just icy logos everywhere this year because there's just been so much to update um mm. I, I guess he'll be hoping for a bit of a, a plateauing of the bad pr um, you know after this appearance yeah yeah but you know i once i once wrote you know sports directors finally become investable i'm regretting those words now but you know perhaps <laughs> it might become investable once again if they have to get their house in order it is a big company big, big company mm. big business lots of shops he has been doing a roaring trade for years. Yeah, I'm just uh, noticing in the news section uh, while we were briefly talking about AIM uh, a minute ago, there is a new float coming up uh, in the biotech space, Merio Biopharma. Today, in fact. Backed by Woodford. <coughs> Backed we, by Woodford and Investigator Petrol. And we were talking earlier, there's another one that was announced today which didn't make it into the magazine because we didn't have the details, which is Time Out. Indeed, yeah. yeah. So no. an interesting one. We were discussing how that's going to kind of work because you can obviously log on to the Time Out website for free. I mean, obviously there yeah. must be a strong advertising revenue, but it's going to be an interesting one, that one. I think we're, we're looking forward to more details on that. That's what we did in the 90s before, you know, before the internet showed us where to go or before uh, social media existed. You know, the listings in Time Out. It's very retro. Does he still do that? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, right. I, I still, I still do it, it, but I just do it online. It's funny. When it first went free on the underground, I used to pick it up every Tuesday. And I would say, actually, in the best part of two years, I haven't. Mm. But that's that's the advent of social media. Yeah, yeah. But I'm sure it's got some weapons in its arsenal, some plans to, to survive in this different media world. I guess it must do, yeah. It's a non, uh, predominantly online business now, I guess. And yeah, we'll, uh, you know. we'll take a look. We will. So the other thing I used to do back in those days was I'd buy loot religiously once a week. I don't know if you remember loot. Uh, it's the days before Craigslist and that sort of thing. It was a paper with listings. So if you were looking for a flat, there was no right move. Kind of like the no Friday ad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And okay. uh, so you'd open it up, you'd look for your flats and you'd ring them up and... Never, they're all gone by the time got it. <laughs> <laughs> nothing has changed on that front by no. the way no that's Nothing, true the flats might be a little bit more expensive but getting them uh, it was, was, uh, they were as rare as hen's teeth then as they are now <laughs> um, anyway okay 
I've I've noticed contributed quite a lot to the magazine this week. You've had a busy week, Jonas. Busy bunny, yeah. Um, lots on uh, on residential property and essentially buy to let here. And you've done a done a little feature for us uh, talking about the housing market outlook. Yeah. Uh, and also something on uh, private rented accommodation, which is a, uh, a neat segue from, from uh, what I was just saying about loot. So uh, talk, mm. talk through uh, your, your two stories here, Jonas. Let's talk about uh, private rented accommodation first. Mm. This is something that's really starting to change. The two companies, uh, Watkin Jones, which is a new construction company, and also um, Telford Homes, and basically they've provided a conduit for the billions of pounds in pension funds uh, obviously they're looking for somewhere to invest with a decent return that's safe but obviously they had no expertise in the housing market and what these two companies are doing uh, is basically uh, forward selling projects to the uh, the institutions who then pay for them and it's a wonderful way of uh, stimulating growth in, in, in the house building sector and it also gives the institutions a, a reasonable return uh, and a safe one so this is, this is the old build to rent that uh, has been right. talked about for many, many years, but hasn't really materialised. Hasn't taken off at all because there's never been a way of converting all those funds. You know, uh, the, the house builders didn't have the money and the institutions didn't have the expertise. OK, so this is, this is really interesting. So this could be potentially part of a solution to the housing crisis? Uh, yes. Uh, obviously, there are constraints that apply still. Labour constraints, planning process is still pitifully slow but um yeah it's certainly a very good start okay okay i mean you know let's uh, let's stick to the subject of housing because your feature is about the housing market more generally uh, and really where we are i mean brexit has obviously had an effect here um but, but you're looking more at the longer term outlook i think so yes because uh, basically there's there's too many people looking for too few houses brexit's obviously going to have an effect but if you're an aspiring house owner um, it's not really going to make that much difference. Uh, so, so basically, I mean, you know, I, I can't understand how Brexit can can really derail the uh, the housing market uh, in in the way that some have predicted. Uh, as as you say, we need more houses. We're not going to stop building houses whether we're in or out of Europe. Or exactly, that's, that's a that's a fact. Yeah, yeah. The only factor that could possibly have an influence, uh, I don't think it will do, is uh, if we left the EU, um, it, it might push interest rates higher. Basically, I think the Bank of England, we've been bending over backwards to keep the market stabilised um, by not putting up interest rates. Um, but obviously, if interest rates start to rise, then that could squeeze affordability issues. OK, um, let's talk quickly about buy-to-let, because you mentioned that. Now, buy-to-let uh, landlords have had a bit of a scare recently in the, the form of higher stamp duty. Um, what's that market looking like? Well, the, the number of houses uh, available for rent has fallen post-April April 1 stamp duty increase. But it's not entirely clear whether that's just a trend or whether it's just a fallback from the rugby scrum that started, you know, prior to the stamp duty hike. Um, it, it's not. It's not a problem that's going to go away because um, if the build, if the landlords have increased costs, they're just going to push them down the line, and rents rose in April for the fastest rate for six months. So basically, all the stamp duty increase is going to do is it make it more expensive to rent a house. Okay, unintended consequences. Mm. Wonderful. Um, there was also a fear that should we have a, uh, a house price downturn, lots of buy-to-let landlords would simply flood the market with the properties they no longer want. Uh, but you're pretty sanguine about that as well. Yeah, yeah. Landlords tend to look at uh, house price collapses as good news. One, because uh, the, the rental yield would increase on any new property they buy because it's cheaper. So they take a 10 or 12-year view. 
so uh, the idea of the landlords sort of jumping into the market and selling their houses at depressed prices so people can buy them is a fallacy. Okay, interesting stuff. And uh, there's, a, there's a nice addendum to this piece, which is written by Emma Powell, who's our banking correspondent, looking at some of the challenger banks who are particularly exposed to buy-select lending. And actually, they've, they've taken a bit of a hit recently because of worries over the buy-select market. The fact is they're diversifying and, and, and uh, we believe that the buy-to-let market is not perhaps as dead in the walls as some suggest it is. No, not at all. Uh, I, I think yields might be hit a little bit, but um, it's, it's interesting because uh, the, the landlords were potentially hit by a, a, a clause with a West Brom mortgage company um, who tried to put an extra 2% on tracker mortgages. Oh, yes. Um, Cheeky. When, yeah, when... when when the cost of wholesale money was uh, making it uneconomic to 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 fund a a, a tracker mortgage at 0.5 percent plus a bit, and they've just lost at the court of appeal, so that's painful for them. Good news for buyers at landlords. Indeed. Okay, good stuff. Let's quickly turn to the cover feature. Half full. So this is about topping up on the shares that you've always wanted to own but previously couldn't afford because they were far too expensive. Yeah, absolutely. It was it was first born out of uh, the results season that we went through in March. I think a, not just me, plenty of other writers on the team noticed that some of their sort of stocks they really hold in high estimation were coming off as sort of market jitters took hold at the beginning of the year. Um, for Some for quite ex- obvious reasons, uh, underpinned by poor trading or something. Um, others by purely sentiment driven and we can't understand sort of uh, the cheap rating that they're now going for so it's in our opinion time to top up okay so let's uh, let's not go through them all in detail let's pick a couple uh here's one i like booker yeah booker. this for me would be a cherished stock were i to own it which i don't right i've never never seen a price entry point cheap enough well exactly this is the whole point it's it's stocks that have traditionally traded at really high multiples and only really seem to go in one direction there's very um, little chance of ever getting into it at an affordable price but uh, but sadly booker like like many of its compatriots have suffered from um a really sort of punishing attitude from the market about uh, the momentum in their like-for-like sales, which admittedly have been in a downward tra- trajectory since the beginning of the year. But we have food pl- price deflation. So. Exactly. And they're just, you know, the deflationary front is, is intensifying. It's not getting any easier by any means, especially when we talk about consumers having to tighten their belt, possibilities of another recession, etc. Um, however, Booker's PNL works in a completely new, unique way to it and it alone and to understand the relationship between the top and the bottom line is is very very specific in this case so when they reported results uh, a few weeks ago we found that despite sort of a, a flatness at the top line profits were were still up and that's because book is extremely good at managing costs and protecting its margins and if it can do that it will protect profits and still be able to give shareholders special returns. Indeed. I think it's a brilliant business. I tipped it years ago myself when I covered the sector. I did, I did have a row with Simon Thompson, who was then company's <laughs> editor, because he thought, I think it was 17 or 18 times earnings at the time. Yeah. He just didn't want to buy it at that price. And, uh, no, I, went, and I waited until he went on holiday and pushed it through anyway. <laughs> I mean, it, it does depend on your attitude. I, I wrote a, a very similar feature last year, albeit looking at stocks for a lifetime, as in these are the ones really worth shelling out for. And I'm pretty sure Booker probably made it into that as well. And uh, and this is the point, you know, suddenly because the market's um, taking a really harsh stance on, on some of these consumer-facing stocks in particular, uh, there's suddenly a viable entry point, one okay. you've always hoped for. Let's talk about Mark's expenses as we promised we would. Uh, mm. This is quite divisive. Uh, yeah. I, think it's a, I think it's a basket case. You don't. 
Uh, I do. <laughs> I do. I do think it's a basket case at present, but I think there's potential for the new management team to turn it around if they want to. It's It's got some real problems. I'm not going to shy away from that. The general merchandise division has been in decline for a number of years, and they've really lost sight of who their core customer is in that side of the business. Mrs. Marks and Spencer. Who is she? I and don't know. can we all please stop patronising her <laughs> wherever she may be? I think is uh, I think is the main complaint at the moment. But um, there is hope in the form of Steve Rowe. Although I will be the first to admit that a few weeks ago in May he didn't do the best job at sort of igniting the. Um, inspiration that a lot of people had hoped for. That being said, he is a lifer with M&S, started out as a Saturday boy there, and he, for a long time he was in charge of the food division, which is pretty much the only food business in this country to outperform the deflationary background. Mm-hmm. Like for likes are up um, almost every quarter. Marginally, but they're up, and that's a huge achievement in, in this sort of environment. So he was in charge of that for a very long time. Last July, he took over general merchandise when the head of that business quit very suddenly, and less than six months later, he got the got the top job as well. So fingers crossed that he can turn it around. He seems to be more than aware of what's wrong with that business, um, and a lot of it comes down to product quality and pricing. Those are going to be sort of his big two initiatives. I think the market was unduly harsh a few weeks ago. M&S reported results and, and sent the shares down 8%. This is our buying opportunity. <laughs> Indeed. They, they're incredibly cheap. I mean, it's like 12, 13 times forward earnings. I think it was even less than that. It probably is now. This is talking about the original tip, which we actually did do okay. ahead yeah. of the results. I thought it was closer to 10. It probably is now. For good reason. I mean, those results were not good. However, Mm. I really don't think the market could have expected them to be anything else but what they were. And it it sent the shares down in such a way that the market sends shares when they are sort of shocked by how bad they are. I I can't believe there was any real shock there. Come on. But let's face face it, Marcus Spencer's is a national institution. Mm. No doubt about it. It's a share people love to own, as Bradley's uh, nice chart up the front showed us. And the share's very cheap. So... Interesting yeah. one to look at there, perhaps. Uh, yeah, I think have... if you yeah you can't be faint of heart with MS. You have to sort of believe in it or don't. Um, it's it's a it's a bit of a roll of the dice at the moment, but uh, it's one that I'm betting on. Okay, um, you've written uh, about some property uh, companies in this feature as well, but we've got we've got Jonas here, so uh, let's talk about another one uh, that we've long uh, <clears throat> admired, which is Workspace. Cool. Workspace. They had some results this week as well, uh, which look pretty good. But Workspace's shares have come off. Oh, yes. And again, buying opportunity. Well, we, we tipped them about a year ago, and they're up uh, a penny since then. Um, and since that time, or well, in the last four years, they've trebled in their asset value. Profits are up. Everything's up, and they're doing really well. Um, uh, and, uh, and again, the, the demand for, for small office space in London is just going from strength to strength. Um, small companies, it's not specifically... Um, uh, affected by the euro or anything like that um, so workspace has taken advantage of the situation and invested in properties in areas of london which uh well at one time you wouldn't uh, stop you'd drive through but nice places now um which are, are, are very uh, attractive um they've also got an interesting little model whereby once they uh, identify a site they sell it to a house builder for cash and the house builder builds houses on it um, on the proviso that it also builds a very nice little purpose-built um, office block uh, for small businesses. So the whole thing is de-risk because the, the, the house builder takes the risk. 
So definitely worth topping up on. Shrewd, shrewd definitely. property management, exposure to the booming entrepreneurial trend in the UK. Yeah. Yeah. You'd be mad not to own it. <laughs> so yeah, we. Uh, I'm, I'm often accused of being a pessimist, but uh, this week... Uh, I'm I'm an optimist. I see the glass half full. Uh, so uh, thank you, Harriet. It was a good feature. It's really really interesting, yeah. uh, an interesting way to look at shares and uh, pip bounce of market weakness, which we inevitably get. Don't yeah, be absolutely. perturbed. Yeah, I think I think the intro to that is 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 very sound in that you know for a lot of people think oh market contraction I can only lose let's pull my money actually there's a massive opportunity there if you're willing to look for it. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay. Um, before we sign off, uh, let's quickly have a look at uh, a couple of results. Not not especially busy, but a few. Uh, Bradley, what have you, what have you uh, spotted this week? Well, I picked up AO World for um, Harriet, who was on holiday. It's the first time I've covered it. I mean, I've, I have to say they have been marketing heavily. And before I took the call, I did have their kind of little jingle in my head. So the marketing is obviously working. They're an online white goods e-tailer, but they're sort of going into technology as well. They're going to start selling computers very soon. I don't know. It's an interesting. Obviously, um, it's on the sell for us at the moment. It's not a sell tip. It's just on a, on a sell. We haven't been that bullish about it. But yeah, it's an interesting one. I think last time Harry was sort of talking about the fact that the very, very heavy marketing spend was all well and good. But we weren't quite sure about the 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 payment the the return that it was creating yeah i think we've always just been slightly wary of management there as well they're incredibly headstrong um and very sort of um determined to the point of sort of you're just a bit bewildered by the whole thing i think he can be quite intimidating over there and uh yeah, I think we, we just don't want them to sort of run before they can walk sort of thing, um, to put it in that nice little wrapped up cliche. And it's a bit like what we were talking about right at the beginning of the podcast. And so far as these businesses, you don't want them to get too big before they can really prove that they're well run. Um, it's it's in still incredibly early days for them. It's, it's really taking a retail punt there and in a cycle where white goods and if they're going into electricals, I mean, sure, diversifying the business sounds like a good idea, but we all know what a sort of market electricals has become it's incredibly difficult um dixon's car phone is probably the leader if you want to invest in a much more shored up stock i'd say head that way mm. low margin business i would imagine yeah and the the competition's in in so intense i mean if you look at i mean home retail for example had a trading statement today with argos um obviously it's soon to be taken over by sainsbury's we'll see how that all goes but while you're sort of analyzing that business in itself argos has had okay numbers today but dreadful numbers for the last few quarters and a lot of that comes down to sluggish electricals mm, mm. there you go there you go uh jonas uh, you've written, written a few results this week so as well as workspace uh, what's your highlight um <clears throat> well custodian reit is a, a, an interesting little company um it it uh, highlights the, the the imbalance between the supply of commercial space and demand because after the crash um uh, construction of commercial space virtually died and it's only just now starting to pick up um, now obviously there's quite a few players in this but custodian REIT is 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 operating in an area it basically only buys things for about an average 2.9 million um, and that's the sort of deal that would just disappear under the radar of all the big players but it's it's, it's quite simply buying up commercial property refurbishing it and renting it out at a much higher rate Mm. Um, it's a it's a, it's a money making operation until the market turns. Yeah, which there's not really any suggestion that it's going to do for some time yet. No, no. It, it uh, uh, the interest rate environment is pretty benign. Uh, land price inflation is fairly benign. 
Um, and obviously, it's a cyclical business, but I think before we sort of reach an apogee, I think there'll probably be a leveling out and you'll have a flat market, whereas capital appreciation will give way to rental income as a key growth driver. Well, and I guess looking at this uh, this particular company, the attraction there is the yield rather than the capital growth. <laughs> well, yes, indeed. Yeah. So 5.8% historic. Yeah. Uh, scope, for, scope for yield in, increases there. And it's paid quarterly and it's probably, uh, the, if not the, it's one of the top uh, yields in the sector. I guess that's why the shares trade at premium to NAV as well. Yeah, a lot of their, a lot of their uh, competitors um, were trading at premium, but uh, obviously in the last six months, because people have got scared about things, a lot of them now trade at a discount, whereas custodian REIT still trades at premium. Only a small premium, but it does tend to indicate the quality of the company. Mm, presumably it was trading at a larger premium at some point yeah. before as well. I mean, this was something that came up in our recent event. We had uh, a couple of property companies there, uh, one of which was an investor in uh, the commercial property space. And, you know, their, their view, so whether it was uh, property investment trusts or, or uh, real estate investment trusts, the kind of listed uh, property vehicles, the fears around Brexit had, had actually seen quite a dip in, in share prices there. Mm. Many companies, many investment trusts trading at discounts to NAV, a buying opportunity. Top up time. Yeah. Okay. Great stuff. Lots more in the magazine. Like I say, uh, we have, as well as the cover feature, a number of other features. Uh, John Barron's latest investment trust column. Um, he's uh, he's going full on Brexit here. He's not worried. And you know, given that he's managing quite a significant investment trust portfolio, perhaps readers can take some comfort in that. You wrote the sex focus this week, didn't you, Bradley? I did. Yeah. On pub groups Three. and how they're kind of looking to um, like transport hubs and even housing estates to sort of site their, their new uh, new locations. Transport hubs. Yeah. Okay. We have a stock screen from Algie Hall, his genuine value screen. It's a good one, as they mostly are, as it happens. Plenty in the personal finance and funds section, uh, which they will no doubt be talking about on their podcast tomorrow. I think I'm actually manning the desk for that one uh, for the first time, so let's hope I don't mess it up. All the usual comments, news, lots more results and tips. So uh, thank you very much for listening. Thank you, Harriet. Thank you, Bradley. And thank you, Jonas. Pick up the magazine, all good news agents, £4.70, half full, how to make the most of falling share prices. And we'll be back again next week. See you later. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.